Welcome to Candela. I'm Christopher Hooten. In this episode, my co-host Alan Schaller and I are joined by Ted Griffin, who co-produced The Wolf of Wall Street and executive produced Up in the Air, amongst other films, but is best known for writing Ocean's Eleven, which we drill down into today. Our cinematography and photography focus isn't going anywhere, but we thought we'd serve up something today that's a little different. Or maybe it's not, as screenwriters have to pre-visualise stories in a way not dissimilar to DPs. We hope you enjoy the conversation, and let us know what you think on Instagram where we're at Candela Podcast. That's at C-A-N-D-E-L-A Podcast. Thanks. Ted Griffin, welcome to Candela. How you doing? I'm doing excellently, given the state of the world. Uh, how are you guys Indeed. doing? Yeah, not too bad, thank yeah, you. same. Yeah, we're pleased to have you on the show today. For listeners, a bit of a backstory as to why. Uh, obviously, up until now, the show's been focused on the kind of visual aspects of a film, though we did have Dan Sakheim on, who's a director, but mostly DPs. But I th- we were thinking, like, I, I don't want to patronize listeners by thinking that they could only possibly be interested in the visual aspects of filmmaking and they have but in no interest whatsoever in how other parts of the film come together. So we're starting to think about, while still keeping the show in general, like directed on the visuals, talking to other people involved in production. Um, and then when we start to think about screenwriters, which is obviously is a, uh, an area very close to my heart, we were talking about Ocean's Eleven and specifically how there were there were two films that we think are just have such high entertainment value that you can just watch them again and again and always enjoy them and appreciate them and that was catch me if you can and spielberg Eleven. and oceans 11 uh soderbergs and and jeff nathanson uh who wrote catch me if you can we share a credit on another movie do you which we, we, we may get to but yeah just oh, yeah. in terms no. of just really no, fucking like concise yeah nice films that just like zip along like they're they're always always a joy yes they are um so what so we thought obviously we'd we'd do a little bit of a a deep dive into oceans 11 today so obviously it was originally a 1960 rat pack film with sinatra and stuff and then this which i did not work on uh if you can't you can't see me but i'm not that old Uh, wait but before before we uh, dive into oceans why do you why do you have uh, you just said uh, you have an affection for screenwriting. Uh, why is that specifically true of you, Chris? Uh, just it's something I do and I, I like to direct as well, but um, I get a real and, you know, they are such different beasts doing a role where you're on set and you have to be like this kind of paternal figure and, and love everyone and build this kind of <laughs> family, as it were, even though that sounds cheesy. But there's something I really like about the process of just sitting down every day and knocking out words and it being a quite a sort of insular silo thing um yeah i just got a real fondness for that and it's it's kind of undervalued as well i think this the screenwriter doesn't really get a lot of uh they're not really seen or heard about from much unfortunately yes they're historically uh dismissed the schmucks with underwoods that i can't remember which studio boss called them that but uh <laughs> because in film they're replaceable which is why so many people are now doing well besides it's where the money is uh it's why why you, you move into tv they're kind of financially dismissed as well aren't they whereas they used to get you know brought on board and paid to develop a script now you, <laughs> it's been so devalued somewhat yeah <laughs> anyway yes well, well uh we can we can uh I, I was just curious about that we can talk about uh the writer's life or the writer in hollywood uh yeah and i'll r- repeat other things smarter things that other people have said uh <laughs> but yes so 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 there was 
there was a 1960 Ocean's Eleven, which uh, uh, I'll try to keep the personal biography down to a minimum. But I, I really grew up as a, a cinephile of sorts. My grandparents were in the business on my mom's side. My grandfather was a director of nearly 100 movies. Um, he shows up. On, do you guys have Turner Classic Movies in uh, We don't. I wish we did. I love that it's, it's, I was watching it's, it's, it's one of the... Uh, one of the few pieces of evidence that there is a God, that, that Turner Classic movies exist. <laughs> anyway, um, his, his stuff shows up usually kind of in a, in a graveyard shift, uh, but a lot of, of movies from uh, the 30s to the 50s. But he started out as a, like an extra on D.W. Griffith movies. And uh, his third wife was, um, or fourth wife, I, I lost track. It was my grandmother, who was an actress who worked from uh, the mid-30s. And they both uh, had walks, or they both still have stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Why am I telling you all this? You can uh, edit <laughs> all this, right? Okay, anyway. So I, anyway, I grew up with sort of the, uh, a lot of Hollywood uh, lore around me and with lots and lots of movies. And there was hardly a movie I hadn't seen except Ocean's Eleven. It was sent to me in uh, in 1998, as a potential remake, I had just had two movies, my first two movies made, and I knew a secret, which was that neither of them was going to do well. Uh, one had been a very pleasant uh, production, but was a terrible movie, and the other one had been a terrible production and was actually turning into an interesting but offbeat film, but I knew both of them were not going to set the box office on fire, and it might be a good idea to take a job before either of those things came out and... <laughs> as we say in the industry, shat the bed. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so I, uh, so I got offered uh, Ocean's Eleven and I'd, I'd never seen it and I put it on and I didn't like it at all. Um, and they had, had, they had developed a script already by uh, a very nice guy named Steve Carpenter, which was very faithful to that movie in that it was about a bunch of buddies who had been in the same army unit in the mm. war and they thought, oh, let's apply our skills in order to make a bunch of cash uh, heisting Vegas. Uh, and some of the characters in, in the, the script they developed were sort of reflected the Rat Pack. Um, so, uh, but, it, but it, it, was a, it was a remake for people who already adored the original, and I, which left me cold. But I started thinking about uh, movies of that genre, which I grew up with and, and loved, specifically The Great Escape, The Magnificent Seven, the professionals, uh, sort of those groups of men on a mission movies, plus the sting, which was a yeah. sort of a comfort, a comfort food movie for me growing up. Mm. And so I started thinking, Oh, but there is a movie here that my 12 year old self would love, but could be smart and elegant enough that it's not just a, a, a movie for, for kids or a t- <laughs> that wasn't my only uh, audience in mind. Yeah. So what, so they, they, they already had a script in place that was very faithful and what they, they, that wasn't what they were looking for. So that you were brought in to do, produce something different. And so they sort of said, what would you do? And I, I went in and um, didn't really have a fully thought out concept of it. I, in fact, I said no a couple of times before it dawned on me that there was a, a way of doing this. And then I remember driving around and uh, here's a testament of what kind of a film nerd I am. I was listening to the Henry Mancini score of uh, for Touch of Evil. And there was something about listening to that and thinking about guys in suits kind of skulking around Vegas on a heist that I sort of thought, okay, there could be something fun here. So I, so I signed up. There was, a, there was another director attached 
at the time, but basically I kind of got into the song and dance with, for, for Jerry Weintraub, the producer who's no longer with us. And, um, and then was kind of left alone to go and, and, uh, and figure it out. So, and I think at some point I sort of turned in pages and Jerry read them and I was realized I was writing something more about professional criminals and con men. Uh, and I think he was surprised by that. He, he thought he was getting something closer to the original. I think he said, these guys are uh, all criminals. They got to be friends. <laughs> That's my Jerry Weintraub impression, which is you just do Stallone after two or three drinks. Um, <laughs> And uh, so he was concerned, but I'd, I'd also given the pages to the studio and they said, no, 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 do, keep, keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so once, once you're, you're in and you're on board and you say you're in Vegas, did you, how long were you there researching? And then did you, or would you, were you writing it while you were out there or did you do like, I'm going to do a, some time there and then I'm going to go away and, and hold away and write it or how did that work shake out? I did a pretty quick research trip. You know, I, I don't know if you've been to Las Vegas, but it is yeah. uh, it, it, what they call a 23-hour town, which mm. is at some point you kind of feel like, I got to get out of here. Oh, uh, honest to God, my I, I had the full Vegas experience. And I remember I was leaving, driving down to Joshua Tree, and I was like, I'm really glad that I went to Vegas. I never want to fucking go ever again. <laughs> <laughs> that was the that was the feeling. I, I, I went there many years ago with my dad when I was 15. <laughs> So I couldn't really experience anything. I just found it, it was just extremely boring and to me back then. But I feel like I would love to go back and, and do my 23 hours uh, on, my, you know, on my own. Mm. <laughs> I think it'd be a lot of fun. Uh, wait for the vaccine. Um, <laughs> it's it's yeah. a tough city to, uh, to wear a face mask in, I think. Yeah, I remember the rain being hot. That was about, that's my main memory of uh, Vegas was having experienced hot rain for the first time. It was extremely weird. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, so I had been there maybe a couple times as a kid when it was in the in the sort of mid eighties. It was uh, it hadn't quite kind of rebounded. The Strip was not the Strip. There was no Mirage. There was no Treasure Island. It was still uh, I think Caesars existed, but. And then there was Fremont Street, which is downtown. It was a little, it was much seedier then, uh, which is why the, it's a memory from childhood of the flyers for hookers uh, that uh, plays, plays a role in oceans. Because mm. yeah. I remember as a 14-year-old, like seeing flyer, like, oh, you can get a prostitute here and being, as a 14-year-old, <laughs> titillated, very impressed. Yeah. Uh, but See, I was impressed with the rain. That's <laughs> 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 so innocent. <laughs> So hang on. So so if if you weren't like if you weren't like a Las Vegas resident or you know I, I take it you must have had consulting for like finding out how casinos work because you go into such depth in that in in yeah in terms of the, the pits that, and the relationship yeah, with the like, pit bosses you know, and like, like the scene where uh, where you you see how t- Terry Bendix's character uh, how he. Um, does a sweep of the floor, yeah, doesn't and, he? And has like his schedule and everything. Like I, w- I wouldn't have known that kind of thing existed if it wasn't for that film. So uh, yeah, well, that's because some of it doesn't. You you, you do enough research <laughs> to find out, sort of like, oh, here's something I can use, and here's what I can't use. And if you were going to try to rip off a Vegas casino, you would probably need a lot of artillery, and it, that just wasn't uh, the movie. Uh, yeah. we wanted to make it wasn't this movie wasn't going to be heat 
Um, yeah. And so, yes, the the uh, an elevator of uh, uh, elevator going down to a, a vault is a, a total invention. It's actually, I think, inspired by Twilight's Last Gleaming by directed by Robert Aldrich. It's a not totally obscure, but it's a thriller from the seventies about a. Um, like diehard in a nuclear silo. So so five armed men take over a nuclear silo led by Burt Lancaster. Uh, and uh, But they have to, to break in. They have to get through a, um, an elevator. And uh, that's I saw that. I thought, oh, you could do that, but with, uh, with a vault. So because I think every time you approach uh, a heist movie, you're thinking, okay, how is this going to be different than every one of these that we've seen before because part of my research was was like okay how does vegas work mm. what can we what can we use what do we not use and then also here we're working in a genre how do we keep this fresh and interesting and new and not get bogged down in the technology of it which is often a problem of uh, how much how many scenes you're going to have with somebody at a keyboard saying i bypassed this level yeah of, yeah because uh, uh, it's extraordinarily tiresome it's it's one of the downsides of technology is uh, oh yeah we were joking i don't want to derail you too much with this but we were joking before we did this about how like if you tried to you, you're saying obviously even even back when oceans 11 is set you would still need artillery to get in but like if you made that if you made that film now to not strain believability it would have to be all of ocean every single all of the 11 would have to all be hackers and yeah. they'd just be sat yes. off site somewhere in a room just tapping and it would be the most dry boring uh, film yeah. ever and <laughs> no one would set foot in, yeah. in Vegas. But going back to your um, your time in Vegas, obviously it's like, yeah, you, so you're there, you're observing how it works and there's kind of bit of osmosis where you're just trying to pick up on things. Are there, were there little details you'd notice like a, someone passing by an interaction between, you know, like a bar staff and a someone on the floor and kind of think, oh, I can use that. Or was, was it not that kind of experience? I think you pick up, what people's fantasy of Las Vegas is, which we wanted to play into, it, it wasn't meant to be, okay, here's the real Las Vegas. It's the, I think the movie exists in a, in the movie version of Las Vegas. Uh, I'm trying to, think, just as I would say, the great escape, uh, exists in not, <laughs> it's a version of, it's a version of, of World War II Germany that is not, on the side killing 6 million people. It's more yeah. of, it's more of like, you mean in POW uh, camps, you don't get to wear a cool leather jacket and <laughs> ride around yeah. on motorcycles. Uh, and you don't get to take your baseball mitt into the cooler and, <laughs> um, and then, and then hijack a motorcycle and um, yeah. jump over fences. And, and that, that, that isn't the truest sense of world war two out there, but it's a lot of fun. And, and so uh, this was intended to be like the fun yeah. version of Vegas. And also, not like, not too unseemly. Meaning, yes, they're they're strippers and they're uh, and there's everything that that is sort of uh, uh, sinful in Vegas, but not going too too far into, let's say, casino, which is a um, mm. yeah. The strippers don't have bullet wounds or something. Yeah, VD does not <laughs> exist in uh, in uh, the Las Vegas of Ocean's Eleven. Um, but I do remember doing a l enough research on like Steve Wynn to inform Terry Benedict's character because uh, like Wynn famously has, I can't remember the name of his ocular disease, uh, but he's 
uh, I think 90% blind, but apparently, apparently has such a, uh, obsession about detail that he'd walk through the lobby of the Mirage and noticed one tiny light bulb being out. And he would say, like, change that. He was, he was, uh, obsessive about the appearance of everything. And, and so Terry Bennett's character, well, not necessarily based on Wynn is sort of informed by a lot of that. Um, but then also like, walking around Vegas, just like looking at angles in a way like, okay. And, and it's like growing up, uh, with toys. Mm. It's the part of screenwriting, which does send you back to being a kid of, of being playful of, uh, what if we had a guy on top of that building and he had a zip line over there and then yeah. figure out those <laughs> ideas generally can be bad, but they must have loved you in casinos, uh, not actually spending any money on gambling, yeah. just sitting in the corner with a notepad like, hmm. <laughs> well, t- I, I had a question uh, relating to that. So, yeah, well, when you're sitting there deciding, like, what kind of scenes are going to go in and, you know, yeah, like you said, like a zip line between, like, do you ever write a scene with, um, like, the budget of what's <laughs> like in mind of, of, like, whether it's realistic? Like, we were saying, like, like, Imagine you you wrote something like Danny is seen on top of a uh, on top of the casino helicopter shot full panoramic you know that's going to cost loads of money versus just Danny walks out of the lobby. Um, do do you ever make any decisions like that, I, or have to curb it, or do? I mean, I think you you do. It's 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 tough to write Lawrence of Arabia today and say uh, then a thousand camels right over the horizon towards <laughs> Aqaba. Um, although even it would probably be cheaper to do it now because, uh, it would be computer generated and terrible. I'm trying to think if there was any, um, budget consideration. Well, does it happen after you've written it? They go, come on, Ted, you got to change that. That's ridiculous. I guess not on a film like Ocean's Eleven, but just on the other ones, I guess it's probably more of an issue. On Ocean's, I can't remember. There was, there were a few scenes we maybe cut for, took out, uh, just for length. There were, I, the, in the very first draft I wrote of Oceans, the sequence where they go and steal the pinch, because I was writing it for Warner Brothers, which was at the time this sort of a, a studio with a very masculine culture. They, they were all about uh, Lethal Weapon and The Matrix, and the, and um, and it was sort of like if you're going to do an action movie, it, it sort of that was Warner Brothers. And I wrote a sequence where. They've, uh, like the gang that goes and steals the MP realize that it's just been stolen by somebody else and has been loaded onto like a truck or a, a, a um, one of those trucks that carries like a dozen cars. Uh, yeah. yeah. There's probably a name for that. And so I wrote this like three, four minute action sequence where they actually have to heist one of those trucks in act, in motion. A heist of a heist. Uh, d- and uh so so a little a little action sequence within the highest sort of in the middle of the movie to give you a little like juice until uh, until you got to the action again and it just didn't fit you know it was it was uh uh in the movie and so we took it out and did something a, a little bit i would say elegant or, or more keeping in the genre of of a heist movie instead of an action movie mm. um also it, it would have been uh probably terribly expensive um that was the only thing i remember sort of having to uh, do a major change yeah, on that makes sense as well because that's it's quite nice that all of the, the action-y moments in the film do feel a bit like makeshift like these aren't guys who drive fast cars and do you know 
<laughs> go over jumps and shit. That wouldn't have worked. But, um, and um, in terms of the, w- were any of the casts like attached at the point when you were writing, or were you just making up these characters for not knowing who would end up playing them? Nobody was attached. There were. Uh, I had a sense that the movie should be cast w- with a a collection of of known uh, entities, uh, keeping in the Magnum Seven Great Escape model of where you had uh, Garner and McQueen and Attenborough and Coburn and Bronson. And so Clooney was definitely sort of like one, one person I thought, okay, he's one of the very possible uh, Dannys. I would say that I kind of wrote Rusty with more of a, what I would call a second name, which at that time was, let's say like Jeff Goldblum or Kevin Spacey or somebody who's like a good second name on a, on a, on a poster in the, in the same, um, I'm trying to give an example of that. She's like even independence day where like Je- Jeff Goldblum was in a lot of movies, big movies as the second name. Um, yeah. yeah. It's interesting and, uh, though. Cause like the difference between how Brad Pitt, uh, Jeff Goldblum and Kevin Spacey would play that the part of rusty is huge. Yes. And so it was a getting hit was sort of a surprise the one role I had written for a very specific actor in mind, we actually cast that actor, and I'll say who it is now, because uh, I wrote Saul for Alan Arkin, mm. uh, who I, th- I think is probably the greatest living uh, American actor. And he, uh, and we cast him, and we did a table read with the whole cast, and Alan Arkin was hysterical uh, and phenomenal and everything uh, uh, I dreamed he could be. And the next day he got a bad, he had a uh, doctor's appointment and he was diagnosed with something that took him out of the movie. Obviously it's was turned out fine. He's 20 years later uh, still going strong, but, uh, but that's why Carl Reiner was a last minute replacement for Alan Arkin. And I thought added a totally different element because Alan uh, Reiner was significantly older than Arkin. So I think you're, Constantly, I, I think you're worried about Saul, as played by Carl Reiner, that you yeah. wouldn't have been with with Alan Arkin. Um, but I do miss uh, Alan Arkin's voice when he was has to be Lyman Zurgo was uh, something hysterical. Zurgo, uh, Mister Zurgo. <laughs> and uh, uh, the other uh, uh, now it can be told, or uh, if you give a shit, um, it's that I think when I turned it in originally. Before they offered it to Soderbergh and Clooney, which they did sort of in as a package, I believe it got offered to Matt Damon and Ben Affleck to play Danny and Rusty, which I was, had I been alerted to this, uh, would have opposed because I thought they were too young. I, I think they're, uh, and as I heard it, Matt Damon said, no, we can't be those guys yet. Mm. Um, and the irony is that then when Matt uh, came board the movie. I think he played a role that he was actually a little too old for. Uh, I thought like uh, Linus was designed for in the way that Horst Buckholz was the young guy in Magnum Seven that was it was supposed to like launch him. Uh, this role he was, was kind of a wet, like, wet behind the ears twenty something yeah. guy, isn't he? That and character Matt, really. Matt yeah. was already had just shot Born Identity. He was. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, Anyway, there's it was more funny information than you want. That character after Born Identity, mm. uh, he was kind of a bit slapstick, wasn't he? In, in Oceans, he's so great yeah. in comedy, though, isn't he, Matt Damon? He is. He yeah. is. So apart from uh, Danny's character with Clooney, did anyone else match up with 
what you had in your mind when you were writing? Like even l- l- like pit bosses or anything like that. Did you did you cast anyone like on that level that that you thought, yeah, that's per- that's exactly what I. Or thought. even like Ber- Bernie Mac, like is <laughs> I can only imagine him in that role. Uh, I don't know how it was when you were writing it. I think it was intended to be because the one of the uh, I, I thought the two greatest challenges of, of writing it were one coming up with a heist that was fun, novel, and had a a twist that you couldn't see coming or hopefully didn't see coming. Um, so that just the just the like the mechanics of that um, uh, that was a that was a challenge. And the other one was uh, Ocean's Eleven. You need eleven characters and. Uh, Magnum Seven, it's not so tough to keep the seven apart. Um, but Dirty Dozen, I dare you to name mm. all twelve. Yeah, was there was there a part where you kind of um, the <laughs> there must have been obviously of the eleven, a lot, some of them must have come together, and then were there a couple that were more hard to pin down? You'd kind of got yourselves up to about Ocean's Nine. You're like, who, the, who are these last three dudes? <laughs> well, you you try to come up with ways of differentiating them. And one of them was, oh, if you make one of them mute or uh, can't speak English, and all of a sudden yeah. you have you have Yen, uh, who's all right. So, so I know that guy because he's the guy who who um, <laughs> is, is, is is only tr- <laughs> is only translated. Um, same thing if you you turn two of them into one, so it's like the the Malloy brothers. Yeah, and and I think uh, when we were, when I was writing that the Wilson brothers, Luke and Owen had just come on the scene with a bottle rocket. And so they were, I think probably in mind, I don't know if they, it ever got actually offered to them. I do know at some point it got offered to the, to the Cohen brothers to make their acting debut. And they said, that would have been fun. uh, (laughs) um, They were a little older than, than it would have been too old for it. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but who knows? Maybe worse. Uh, but another one is like I knew that uh, Frank Catton was was like uh, he was the only role probably written as as specifically in eth- uh, that that he was not a white guy and he was yeah. gonna uh, because it's, it was part of the con that uh, and, and and but it was also sort of okay here's a guy who I want to be like a comedian. I would say Basher Tor was written, you know, as British also to differentiate and maybe get, oh, let's say Clive Owen or someone of that ilk. That was the one piece of casting yeah, which. Having a t- token British guy. Yeah, we, we won't pass judgment on Don Cheadle's British accent. Yeah. <laughs> well, putting that aside for a moment, and Don Cheadle is a marvelous actor, so it's not no dig on him. No. But it's a terrible piece of casting. Um, it's, uh, it worked out fine, but, um, but I think Soderbergh cast him more because he, he knew he was going to have a big production and a lot of actors on his hands. And he knew that Cheadle wouldn't give him any trouble, um, as opposed to going and getting, um, the, the, uh, the, the Malloy brothers though, that worked out because obviously Casey Affleck is an incredible actor and, and those two characters felt, felt like the most, I don't know if they're your favorites, but they feel like the most written in the way they've got the most kind of defined chemistry. They're the, they were the most fun to write at times because, um, it allows you to be silly. Like the, the evil Knievel bit. I just remember like, uh, cracking up, coming up with bits for them. Yeah, like the bit um, with the yeah with the monster truck and the tiny monster truck. That's so random, but it's those kind of weird 
elements that like make the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it's, it's also sort of like a different flavor. One thing I did before writing was I read all the Damon Runyon stories. Uh, if you don't know him, he's an American writer from the forties whose work got turned into the musical guys and dolls, but he's sort of mostly wrote comic pieces about sort of a fantasy New York underworld gangsters and card sharps and, and dice players. Uh, but with lots of like street lingo that was, um, and, and, and so in a way I was thinking of like, okay, what's the, like the modern version of this. And, uh, uh, the other book I read in preparation, uh, I think is called the big con, which is the book that David S Ward read while he was writing the sting. Uh, but it very much about 1930s grifters and how all that worked. Anyway, one thing I enjoyed about the Malloy brothers was it was sort of a, it was a change of pace from that. They were, um, goofballs. And so it, it, uh, was a little bit of a vacation from, <laughs> from writing the sting. Um, yeah. From suave suited guys. Yeah. Yeah. And spe- speaking of, um, weird character quirks, the, uh, yeah. the, the most important vital question, uh, <laughs> I want to know the answer to is, the uh, Brad eating in almost every every scene. Where did that come yeah. from? He he brought that to the party. I don't know when it got instilled or if he just sort of like snuck it in there. Uh, but I think <laughs> so Brad is very Brad, smart about yeah. <laughs> Rusty must be eating at all times. <laughs> he is very smart in that movie star way of how how to kind of look like a normal person while also like yeah. looking like a movie star. Um. And I'm trying to think of there's there's another version of I mean if you go back and look at some old Redford movies you can see things that Pitt kind of cherry picks of uh, but I'm trying to think if there's a, a, a famous movie of somebody eating through it uh, so that I, I believe that was uh, Brad's contribution. Um, you're you're right though it does just like it does throw it off and make it seem like more like a regular human just in the way that I think those moments like uh, where. Is it Rusty delivers the speech and then he's like, oh, how did you think that went? That went good. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Like it's those little moments that make the film a bit self-aware and yeah. it pulls you out of just being in the really slick kind of zone, which is crucial. Uh, and, I, and I think that may have been, now that I recall it, what may have inspired Pitt, which was in a heist movie, you never see people eat or stop to go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So some of them were quite funny. Like, like when he's outside the prison waiting for for Danny, and he's just got some. He's like, "Where did he get that hot dog from?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just a bit surreal. He just leaning against the fence, just like, "Hmm." I, I've got a question, which is to do with. Um, I mean, I, I I'm sure people don't know the answer to this, and myself included. And it's to do mm-hmm. with you know, does a writer act as like a kind of consultant throughout the whole film like if if like the wardrobe people are like you know say what's what's danny meant to wear do you, do you have an idea of of what danny's meant to wear is that a note that you actually put in the script you can i think it's if it's vital to the story uh i think it's worth putting in there um or if it's vital to the uh, character, I think there was something. There was a note in the script about uh, Rusty's character being something of a clothes horse uh, that he's always very well dressed. But uh, so there, there are a lot of uh, you know there when you're directing a movie, there are a thousand questions like that. Um, 
I was I was on set for the whole movie, which was six weeks of living in the Bellagio, which was a, a lot of fun. I bet. And maybe once or twice a week, something would come up that would be like, uh, where I would have to come in and say, actually, I think it's got to be this in order for this to make sense. But otherwise, uh, you kind of demure, you always demure to the director on uh, certain things unless it contradicts not necessarily your vision, yeah. but but a, a but a logic. Um, can you um can you be more specific on that? Like, what sort of things would Soderbergh come to you and say? What questions would he have for you when you're that late into the process and it's already being shot? Uh, okay, two memories come up. One is they were uh, he had lined up a shot in the sequence uh, towards the end where you you realize the SWAT team was our guys, mm-hmm. uh, and then you do these little flashes back to the heist that you've just seen, but you now you see things you didn't see before. And there was one shot that they were setting up, which was uh, Matt Damon and uh, and Yen like sitting on the money in the uh, in the vault, and then you whip pan and you see uh, Danny and Rusty standing together in the elevator shaft, like as Rusty's saying on the phone, like we're about to go in, like pretending mm. to be this one guy, and uh, and I went up to. Steven, after he'd done a take, and I said, uh, Danny can't be there. Like, the camera in the anteroom with the, our, the two guards that got knocked out, that's a live camera. We're on tape on the, on the inner room, but this, this, this camera is still live, so Danny couldn't have possibly crossed that. Plus, storytelling-wise, he really should be in the vault with the money. There's no reason for him to be standing next to Rusty. So, like, this doesn't like you can shoot this, yeah. but then let's shoot it again with Danny over there. Shouldn't the script um, supervisor have picked that up? Really? Uh, yes, maybe, but there are all sorts of things that you don't, uh, that you, you're surprised as a writer, uh, not so many on this, so much on this movie, but on others where you think that everybody is sort of knows what the score is. Cause they've read the script and nobody's brought up a question. Yeah. Um, my, my favorite one from this movie was, we were, we were actually on the floor of the Bellagio shooting the scene where the SWAT team walks out and we see that it's Brad and the other guys for the very first time. And I, I'm going to pick on Jerry because he's no longer with us. Uh, but, but, uh, and also because he did this. Um, so, uh, Jerry Weintraub, uh, walks up to me and says, uh, shouldn't we have a scene where we see like Brad getting into the SWAT uniform? Like, should we should we have a scene earlier where we see him doing this? <laughs> and I said, well, it's a surprise <laughs> yeah. right now. We don't know it's Brad as the SWAT. That you know, this is the moment where we reveal that, so we wouldn't want to see that. And he kind of goes, okay. And I and he stopped and think like, all right, does the producer of the movie know that like this is a twist or or <laughs> or was he? And then I sort of thought, well, maybe he was just talking about the flashback, but um, but so it's usually writers on sets are like I think Mamet said, plumbers on honeymoons, uh, useful if there's a <laughs> disaster, but otherwise they kind of get in the way. Um, yeah, it's like it's your baby, and you've been thinking about it for a very long time, and other people have kind of been brought in more recently, and don't have as no one's going to have as deep a knowledge of it as, as you in a way. So there are there and there are things that uh, 
it's good to babysit, but uh, but otherwise, um, mm. actors especially, I think, get a little uncomfortable with the writer around because it's like um, it's sort it's of like competing having, in a way. Yeah, it's like having a parent at a party. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's it's like uh, uh, you're yeah, just like, like you've you, done your bit now. Now it's my bit. They just yeah. feel watched. Um, what about at the um, at the table read you mentioned? There are you are you kind of consorting with the director afterwards about how how it went down and where it it works for you in in line with what you'd imagined or? Yeah, you, it, it's always useful to hear uh, how things play. I think at the table read, Julia couldn't be there, so I played Tess, uh, and I I brought a lot of things to the character that I think she missed. <laughs> yeah, I bet <laughs> a certain masculine quality that uh, she That's just terrific. couldn't reach. Um, but I'm trying to remember if there was anything we really kind of learned from the um, uh, the table read. I remember the most useful thing is the first time they shot the Danny test scene at the um, at the table. The first time they they kind of see each other and, and um, go back and forth in a scene that was sort of deliberately written as slightly forty style uh, topping each other. It was uh, Clooney and uh, Roberts very performed it in a in a slightly stylized fashion of like like Cary Grant and Kate Hepburn would like ah oh, yeah no, 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 but, uh, that's a terrible imitation of <laughs> what that is but uh, and and then I think the note coming back to them was take all the take all the glib take all the uh, stop stop being cute like make every line like you guys there's a lot of pain here. Um, and I, which I think is useful, and the scene played much better because instead of just being this gossamer kind of quippy, cute scene, this is really the relationship that is fueling the movie. George wouldn't be have uh, collected these guys to heist these three casinos if he wasn't deep down trying to get his wife back, and therefore, if yeah, it was just, you've, you've uh, got so much kind of quippy dialogue and back and forth going on in the rest of the movie you need a little bit of uh, a feeling there and Danny is quite 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 tragic really what he's doing throughout the movie uh, but you always have to be a, I think a watchdog whether you're a writer director or producer for things like that for the big picture so you don't get caught up in stuff like oh wouldn't it be really funny if we did this right now or wouldn't that be uh, cute like you can have mission creep and sort of think like what's mm. going to, what's going to, uh, and you can also get bored like, Oh, we've been doing this for so long. Let's do this. That's different. And you for, sort of, for, uh, you got to keep the sort of big picture and the, uh, the spine of the story in, in mind. And there's sort of like being a, I think Fincher calls it like a, a tone referee. Uh, uh, and that's really the director's job of making sure that you're, you guys, everyone's staying on the same tone, uh, mm. and that everybody's in the same movie. And so sometimes being a writer on set, you can see where things are getting like, there are a couple moments where I thought uh, maybe they were, they got a little jokey uh, or, or, or went for, for an easy joke uh, that I, I remember saying, let's like, let's get an alt. That's not so um, funny. Uh, there's something like, I think Butch Cassidy and the mm. Sundance kid also is, is probably, it was an influence on the movie simply because that, film does a great job of being enormously entertaining without being a comedy. 
I mean, I think it's it's really funny. So is the sting, for that matter, is too. But it never um, sells out a character for joke. Yeah, I guess the um, the experience of like uh, when you're on set, though, it must be quite fun because by that point, presumably, the hardest work is over, and you obviously you're trying to stay out of the kitchen somewhat and let the director do his thing and let the actors do their thing. So I, you know, I guess you're 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 up in the Bellagio, <laughs> having a nice time. You're watching on the monitor and making a few suggestions. Is it? Am I am I making it sound too easy, or is that? <laughs> it was it, no, it was too easy, and in, and in fact, it was. Um, while I look back on it fondly, it was more of an education for my liver than um, <laughs> than anything yes. else. It was yeah. it was uh, because when you do live in the Bellagio, there's the as I said, Vegas is a 23 hour town, but we were there for six weeks. And so every day when you come back from work and you have to walk through a thriving casino environment and say, no, I, I just got to, I'm going to go back to my room and not come down. And Yeah. I imagine there was like a sort of a, a, a battalion of the crew who would just band together in the evenings and uh, have a, have a few drinks and, and enjoy themselves. Uh, I've just calculated you were there for a thousand and eight hours. <laughs> wow. You're- it's a lot of time. Um, and I slept, <laughs> I slept for almost more. 16 of those. Um, so I, and, and everybody had their, uh, what I remember, everybody had their own kind of, um, indulgence. Uh, I think was, Matt was a bit of a gambler, George, uh, not so much Brad, Brad barely went out into the floor. Um, I think sort of stuck, uh, hung out in his villa, Scotty Khan like the nightlife. I remember, sorry, this is a, a memory that you may not need to hear or include in this podcast, but I remember taking a cab with Scott Khan somewhere and the cab driver said, um, Hey, you look, uh, you look familiar. Are you an actor? And Scott said, yeah. And the cab driver said, you, you, you hear filming a movie? And he, and Scott said, yeah, I'm, I'm, we're shooting the new Batman movie. And, uh, and I said, and he's, he's playing Robin. And, uh, the cab driver said, uh, yeah, who's, who's playing Batman? And Scott said, unhesitatingly, Richard Dreyfus. Um, which is about the hardest I've had, like, to hold back a laugh in a, in, like, for about 10 minutes in a cab of just imagining Richard Dreyfus playing Batman, uh, in the, uh, in the early aughts. Um, I don't know. It amused me. Uh, Sounds like you had a good, yeah, good yeah. six weeks. Also, when you once you get off the strip, there's that there's a few bars, aren't there? Kind of on the outskirts of Vegas that are kind of interesting. I remember going to a weird tiki bar called like Frank's Tiki Room, mm-hmm. and it was super over the top tiki. But then there's still like a couple of slot machines in the in the corner. It's like you can't get away from it. Like you really can't <laughs> get away from it. But it is a whole other town once you're off the strip. It's like. Yeah, I, I live in in Manhattan now, and if I just stayed in the Times Square area the whole time, I wouldn't really be in Manhattan. I'd just be in tourist tourist Manhattan. What is that for London? Is that Piccadilly Circus or Piccadilly Circus? Is yeah, yeah, yeah. Piccadilly's like a really, really, really bad version. It's the of worst Times part of yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you could come it's, and see. It's terrible. It? It's like it's like one one fiftieth the size and just as kind of tacky. And just, uh, I don't know. Yeah. And it's sad because you see so many tourists there and you, and you think, you do. You think, is this what I do when I go to other countries? You know, because <laughs> <laughs> they're not really in London. They're in some weird warped version of Times Square, mm-hmm. really. 
You could go to Times Square and Piccadilly Circus and basically have the same experience, which is odd. I'm trying to think if there's a, is there the theater district in London is that near Piccadilly Circus or the West End? Yeah, that's yeah, kind of yeah, but that's yeah. more in um, yeah, Covent Garden. The, okay, and uh, and the Soho direction, which is a place that me and Alan are very fond of and have. Uh, See, so, yeah, so Soho is like not a five minute walk from Piccadilly. Right? Yeah, it's like it's right next to it, and it's so such a cool place. Yeah, and and it's literally like two roads away, but no one goes like n- not many people will find it. They'll just be there in front of those stupid screens. That's always the way, though, isn't it? Like, you get those parts in cities where you're in the shittest place possible and then you take one side street mm-hmm. and you're in actually a really good place. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, is, that happened to me in, uh, well, yeah, most places. Where was I? In, in Istanbul. I remember I was like, oh, this is a terrible area. It's really boring. And just went down one alleyway. Like, no tourists anywhere. Very interesting. Yeah. So Ted, um, obviously the you know the film Ocean's Eleven went on did really well at the box office. Fucking great film. How come you weren't you weren't back for twelve and thirteen or I? Uh, ta- we d- discussed twelve, and I think there are two reasons to do a sequel. One is if you can get paid more than you can get paid doing anything else. If you can. Yeah. break it in <laughs> uh and i kind of I, I i kicked the tires a little bit on that and and they were going to pay me well but not like um one time only um say goodnight and move to a tropical island kind of money uh so so it wasn't for that reason then i thought a lot about the kind of a uh a a story idea that made it really worthwhile and I had one idea and it wasn't really for a story, but it was, it was actually for the trip for a trailer. And I don't know if this will translate generationally. Um, but the, uh, the idea was that it would be George and Brad having a, like a, an espresso in Venice, Italy, uh, and saying, uh, going back to the, do you think we need one more? And the other one says, no, we need two more. And the camera pans and you see, uh, Robert Redford and Paul Newman, uh, walking towards them. And so the, uh, the idea was get Redford and Newman to come back, uh, do one more movie together as a, uh, uh, and yeah. not necessarily as their fathers, but sort of as their, like, um, their spiritual dads or their professional dads. And so, uh, and I pitched that and, um, I'm not going to name names, but an element in our movie didn't want to work with one of those guys. Um, and so it was like, all right, well, that's done. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and at that point, I just sort of thought, I don't want to, uh, like, I don't want to just sort of phone something in. So I, I bowed out and, uh, the studio had this other script by George Nolfi and they brought him on to change it. I came in the last minute to, to, uh, to help out. So I think there's one scene in 12 that, I would, uh, I think it's really bad form ever to, when you do uncredited work on a script to sort of talk about it publicly. Um, and, and when people do say, Oh, I, I helped out on that script if their name is not it. Um, but I, I'm going to make an exception here. It's because I already stepped and <laughs> started talking about it, but also because it's, because I wrote the first one. But I think the, the scene where, um, Andy Garcia blows up Brad Pitt's car and he's Brad's managing a, a hotel in Hollywood. I, th- I think that was, uh, I think my contribution and maybe the first scene where Clooney's like talking about having 
in a bank and he's talking about having been in a vault during a robbery. But um, so I sort of helped out as a favor at the last minute on those. And then Weintraub called me for 13 and I just sort of thought this thing is already off rails uh, or um, mm. it, it's because uh, I, I think my original notion when I was thinking about doing 12 in the first place was in the same manner that I think Magnum seven like kept a couple of characters or it kept Yul Brynner, but then it, it recruited like six new people. I thought, okay, well you mm. keep George and Brad and then you like you, you have the fun of recruiting these new people come up with new characters and then maybe bring in Bernie Mac or somebody at the last minute to join the gang. Uh, but I thought going with the, like the same 11 was um, a little exhausting. Sorry, I'll just quit the bitch and moan hour. Um, nice. But uh, anyway, so that's so so uh, I was I was kindly invited, uh, but I decided to keep it a singular experience, um, and that was that. Well, good on you because I mean, yeah, it takes a lot to say no to projects that size. So fair play. I'm trying to think of what else happened in the. I'd since I, I had a great time working on Oceans. The next thing I did was I worked with Ridley Scott, and it was so much fun working with him uh and it was I'm trying to be politic here and i was and, 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 at that, and, and, and i was a producer on that movie uh that it just sort of felt like i didn't want to go back mm. yeah sure well maybe to to start to cap off as unfortunately we don't have an eight hour podcast even though we very easily could one great factoid in your career is that you also played as an actor uh, a part in wolf of wall street agent hughes i believe yes uh, how did that how did that come about we had a little speaker an email about uh old marty I, and uh your love of him but i've been um uh working uh, for now 13 years off and on with with marty who i still feel uncomfortable saying marty because it feels like <laughs> no he's mr scorsese like but i i adore him he's he is the the really the uh, the one true genius I've ever come upon in life. He is um, working on a level above everyone else I've ever known, and that I can keep up with him is the uh, makes me feel ten feet tall whenever uh, on a, we're on a project together. So I've done a couple of commercials with him. Uh, the first one was this thing called Quito Reserva, which we emailed about, which is a, a Spanish sparkling wine uh, ad. Uh, and then another one for Dolce Gabbana, which was with McConaughey and Scarlett Johansson, um, which was really beautifully photographed by Rodrigo. So anyway, uh, on Wolf of Wall Street, uh, which I, I was a co-producer on, um, and because I was just kind of uh, with them, uh, the guy who Kyle Chandler's character was based on was supposed to play his partner. And then the FBI said, no fucking way are you going on camera. Uh, and, and so, so at the last minute, they just, they needed a warm body who was going to be around for a while. So, so I, I, I jumped in and, um, realized that I should never act because all I could think about was like, where are my hands right now? What am I, uh, it was completely out of my depth, but it was, I I love that. I love that. You know, like there's that whole thing of, you know, when you're making student films, someone who's like, you know, you're shooting in the DP's house or, you know, someone has to step in and be whatever. I like that that goes all the way to the top yep. and the co-producer jump, jumps in for a Scorsese movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, it's uh, no matter that. And that movie was about as an expensive uh, uh, movie as I've worked on. And yeah. it always, it still comes back to like, we got 20 minutes of daylight. We got a page. What the hell are we going to do? Um, there's no, 
That's just another thing I love it about it. Never stops, does it? It's all just yeah. It's all relative. It just goes up budget and and uh, ambitiousness and everything. You just, <laughs> it it's, just, it's just all the same. Yeah. yeah. And the thing that makes you makes me feel a little better about myself is Scorsese for all his accolades and uh, all the reverence still has every movie as a battle uh, that he that that it, it doesn't get easy. I think f- for anybody, uh, but he's got to. Uh, he's going to battle it. And the other thing I adore about him is that every movie he cares. Uh, I've, I've never seen yeah. him do a shot where he's not, um, saying, well, that's good enough. Even on not on that key to reserve ad, we were, we fell behind schedule. So the last day he worked a 23 hour day. Oh. Uh, and this is for, this is a, for an ad. Uh, Fuck. uh, well, and uh, so I, I think twenty three hours, like being in Vegas. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure Marty's, Marty's day rate on that production was probably enough to make just him be. Right. <laughs> yeah, right yeah, let's not feel sorry for Martin Scorsese. Yeah. He's, he's fine. He's doing all right. He'll, he'll, <laughs> but no, you're right. He, he didn't need it, to do that. It's, yeah, yeah, it's it's what you yeah. Also, what you say about like it, I, I remember hearing about that and like well, the difficulty he had getting silence made, and also the difficulty with the Irishman and that Netflix kind of came in and saved that yeah. production from not happening. Like the fact that like it's a struggle for Martin Scorsese to get a film made is almost enough to make you want to fucking quit. Yeah. But it's, it's, uh, it's wild. And, and how easy it is for other people who will go unnamed uh, to get things going. Mm. Um, but when you think about it, I mean, the, I think the first movie of Marty's that ever really made a considerable profit was uh, Cape Fear. He was he, up until that movie. I think he, he was sort of like every movie was just just fighting, fighting to 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 get it together. Even after Goodfellas, which was, um, I think tough to get made. The only movie, the only way he got Goodfellas made was when he got De Niro to agree to play basically the third lead. Uh, mm. And because um, I know there were some movie stars that would have been very very wrong for the henry hill role that were getting pushed on him by the studio uh and he and he wouldn't make it with them i'll, I'll tell you when once we cut off uh but uh because i don't i don't want to yeah. speak out of school but 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 i do know that he like once he convinced de niro to play that role and they scheduled it this is the amazing thing if you watch goodfellas they scheduled de niro into like a two or three week period but he's all over the movie, meaning it's location-wise and mm, period-wise. Yeah. But they managed to get it, so they shot him out, and then they went back and got everything uh, around it. Oh, well, what's the uh, what's the what's the best Martin Scorsese film then? Let's let's end with that. Seeing as you're you know him and you're such a huge fan. Uh, I, I listen. We we could go another hour just talking about him or just talking about <laughs> movies. I, and everybody has their favorite. I, I I could probably always sit down and watch Goodfellas. My I have a, a soft spot for Life Lessons, his episode of New York Stories uh, with Nick Nolte. I've not, never seen that, actually. I'll rectify that. It, the, that. Watch mm. the first 45 minutes. Watch his uh, watch his piece. It's terrific. I think uh, – so those two and then in no particular order, King of Comedy, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull. Uh, I think Silence is – will find an audience ultimately um it 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 really didn't but uh but i think it's an exceptional piece of work and uh i have absolutely no objectivity about uh wolf because i was uh was too close to it well wolf wolf's up there for me i really really loved that film and um 
Yeah, King of Comedy, obviously. And then The Aviator as well. I just, uh, okay. I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen that now, but I remember that really hitting me this hard, that one. It's such a good film. Mm. Yeah. And do you have a favorite uh, a favorite filmmaker, both of you? I have a, my, one of my, my favorite film is uh, The Great Beauty, that Sorrentino film. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if I have a favorite filmmaker. No, I don't, probably don't actually. Okay. And uh, did you have a, not, not necessarily somebody you interviewed, but do you have a favorite DP? Well, I, I mean, I'm obsessed with Lubezki, mm-hmm. um, who we've not been able to get on the show yet. Deakins would be lovely. Deakins would obviously be really good, but but something about the way Lubezki moves the, the camera and is so balletic and humanistic, I just, oh, it's incredible. So we, well, hopefully we'll have him on at some point. Okay. I, d- I did a project. How about you? I did a project last year where in, in uh, preparation for it, I watched a lot of Gordon Willis of the 70s and 80s. And if like when you look at filmmakers like Hitchcock in the fifties or Woody Allen in the eighties, uh, there's the same thing is true of DPs where it's sort of like some people just get into a pocket of greatness and, and Gordon Willis in the seventies and eighties, there are a lot of great filmmakers and they all seem to make their great movies with him. Um, mm. and less noticeable, but the guy I liked a lot, uh, from that same era is Owen Roisman. Uh, who you should watch Taking a Pelham 123. He shot that, but he also did, he could do Tootsie. I mean, he's very New York based. He did a lot of Lumet films. Um, Greg Toland going, going back, yeah. uh, in time. Um, as far as I just realized I do have a favorite filmmaker, actually. Who? I'm quite controversially, I'm a huge Terrence Malick fan, and people seem to have kind of gone off him in the last 10 years, but I, some of those movies I actually think are incredible. I have not seen his last few do song to song if you get a chance okay um, yeah i like that one Charlie, besides kubrick is there a filmmaker who came up as a photographer i don't know actually there's definitely a few that like myself for were not, critics first but not, i don't know not not a seri- i mean from the ones we from the people we've spoken to like it seems like they've had an interest in it but never pursued it as a diehard thing you know like w- wanting to it's a very, it seems to attract a very different personality. It's, a very different, yeah. it's, just, it's just such a different way of working. And uh, yeah, like Chris said, it just requires people who are just totally different characters to those who could tolerate being on film sets versus some people who sound like they would hate the lifestyle of being a photographer. Okay. Um, high percentage is, of psychopaths in photography, I think. <laughs> it tends to be more. Well, it's got right, to be a high percentage because we have, uh, well, movies lend themselves to sociopaths, uh, not so much psychopaths. True. But um, I'm trying to think if I have any other uh, great thoughts to uh, to conclude with. Um, yeah, any final, what's Ted, Ted's final great thoughts? Uh, <laughs> uh, never bet on red. Never bet. I I really can't go to uh, back to Vegas sort of after that movie because we had the keys of the kingdom. Meaning, uh, if you go to Vegas alone, fully comped in the Bellagio, (laughs) comp stuff, and and then you have this this elephant gun of movie stars, and so like anywhere you want to go, you can go. You can get a restaurant opened up after hours and hang out there. And then when you go back there without that, without that VIP pass, and you're any other schmuck, 
uh, it, it, yeah. it hurts a little bit. Yeah, it's never go back there again. I, I remember leave, leaving Las Vegas, like in the in the, title, in the film title, and um, driving through Joshua Tree and thinking that all the Joshua Trees were doing jazz hands at me because <laughs> I'd had such a, a wild uh, <laughs> roller coaster of an experience in Vegas. And I was like, yeah, I need to put this behind me. It takes, <laughs> it takes a little time to get Vegas out of your mental system of what you think because when you're gambling, like making $25 bets and you're drunk and you think, oh, well, that's, you know, that's the minimum bet. Who gives a shit? And then once you get back home, $25 actually means something and you've got to start, uh, yeah. stop, uh, mm. spending like, uh, like a sailor to coin a phrase. <laughs> I, for some, for some reason, I have absolutely no interest in betting. So I put a single dollar bill into a, a, a slot machine themed around the movie Titanic. Uh-huh. It took it didn't win anything from it and it was gone. And I was like, I'm very happy that being my very small, minimal token contribution to the gambling system. I gambled once. I was in Monaco for a day Mm -hmm. and I went to the famous casino and I took out the minimum (laughs) spend, which was 20 euros. And I got a chip and I put it on, uh, I played red or black and I put it on black. And funny that you said never, never play red. And uh, I won three times in a row, and I left with something like 150 euros or something. Well done. <laughs> and there was a guy. There was a guy playing who was betting with these big chips that were like this, you know, like proper brick size chips. And, and I, I assume they were like tens of thousands. And he was losing them and winning, and he had no expression change. He was just doing it, and he had these two very young women with him, uh, and he was. Just, <laughs> And and me and my friend Dave were just going hysterical over winning three hundred dollars between us, and uh, I then I I thought what, what can I do here? I, I went into the cafeteria area and I, and I bought a I mean calling it a cafeteria is extremely <laughs> doesn't do it justice. I, I bought a chocolate eclair for nineteen dollars. That was one of my things I spent my money on, and I thought. And I, I ate it just on my plate walking around watching it. Um, eight dollars. <laughs> such a strange experience. Such a weird life. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, uh, absolutely. Today, Good luck with this uh, next uh, section of your podcast. Is there anybody else you're you're uh, hunting for as far as... Well, I, I think... I mean, um, hopefully we'll have some more screenwriters on, but I think i'd like to have a production designer on at some point because they are truly unsung um we, we we fly by the seat of our pants we're not very uh <laughs> we don't have it all forward planned out for guests for the next coming months it's uh we just kind of do it a bit more ad hoc so yeah we'll, we'll have a beer and be like no oh, maybe this guy <laughs> <laughs>